Welcome to the Dwelling Podcast. We're so glad you tuned in. Our hopes is that this message inspires you and builds your faith today. Before you sit down, high five three people you've never met before. I caught you. You guys feeling good this morning? Yeah, I'm excited. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Christian. Uh, my wife and I serve here on media team usually, um, and uh, but something that we love to do that's uh, really, really been special to our lives is we get to lead one of the community groups here, the downtown community. Come on, have you missing community groups right now? Anybody else missing community groups? If you just kind of started jumping in at the dwelling over the summer community groups, we're kind of in a break right now, but hang in there. We're coming back in the fall. It's going to be so, so good. Um, I really can't underestimate the impact that community has had on my life. Not just the fact that our church gives spaces for it, but I mean just the reality that there's truth that God didn't create me to do this alone and that I get to actually walk through life with people and it's been probably one of the most impactful truths that I've learned about God since, um, just since walking with him. So I'm excited for those to start back up. Do life with people. It's just better. It's just better. We are, um, we're jumping into week three of our series, Tested. Have you guys been enjoying Tested? Who else was really bad at tests? Nobody? Everybody was really good at tests? No, I got a few hands. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I was okay. I was okay at tests. Um, I will say though, Something I'm really bad at. Who was here last week and we had to move all these chairs out of the auditorium? I'm really bad at stacking chairs. I, I discovered that. Uh, it's kind of a, I don't know if you were here, it kind of turned into this strength test between the guys, which was really weird. Like everybody started trying to take as many chairs as possible out of here because uh, they were doing some work in here this week. And so every guy was just carrying as many chairs as they could. And I go over there, because by the time I kind of got over, they had already stacked the chairs. I took my time getting over there, if I'm being honest. Um, and they already, I guess they had assumed that the average guy should be able to carry five chairs. And so, like, I went over there to grab, and I literally, I could not get it up. I think it was a length thing, not a strength thing, you know what I mean? Um, and so I had to unstack the chairs so that then I could help. But that actually wasn't even the worst part. The worst part is there was like a, a, some hoodlums who had congregated outside of the auditorium shouting at the guys as they walked by, led by, I won't say their name, um, but it was Leah. And <laughs> she's yelling at every single guy that comes out. And, and they're like, six chairs, woo, you guys are killing it. Five chairs, five chairs. And then I walk by and I'm like, they're like, Three chairs, dude? Really? Like, that's all you could get? I'm like, yes, it's a length thing. But uh, I'm just worried about vanity in the church. That's why I wanted to bring that up. I just want to make sure we cut that off before it gets out of control. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm really excited to be here. This has been a really good series for us. Uh, we're kind of, like I said, jumping into week three of it. And really, if you've been here, we've been taking kind of an expository approach to the book of James, kind of going line by line, verse by verse. And one thing that Gunnar said that I really like when we do this, when we kind of go through scripture this way, you can't skip the hard stuff. 
And I really like that because I've noticed that with God, the hard stuff, the stuff that I really have to wrestle with, those are the things that have had the most impact on, on who I am and on my intimacy with the Lord. And so, um, and really that's kind of been one of the focuses of this series, I would say, just the becoming of who you are. Because we're kind of looking at James from this bird's eye view and you can kind of break the book down into all these different tests that, that are kind of presented to us just as we're walking in life. And I think that the series is really centered around this verse that we did a couple weeks ago. It was in chapter one, verse four, but it said, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We've kind of already covered like tests, like they're not, we don't have tests in our life because God's trying to decide whether he likes you. God's not trying to decide whether he loves you. Like he already does. You've been approved. He loves you. That's not why tests, that's not why we have tests. Tests aren't even always bad, even if it feels bad right now. And I'm not trying to be like insensitive to anybody's pain and what you're going through because the Lord isn't, honestly. Like he has more compassion than you and I could ever imagine towards our pain. And he loves us so much more. Your pain, my pain, it just breaks his heart. Because you're his kid, I'm his kid. But because he's working in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of broken people, he's trying to achieve something. And he uses the brokenness of our world to produce something good in us and in the world. And really what I've found is when I'm being tested, the only thing, the only way that I make it through is that I am convinced, I hold on to this conviction that God is good and what he has for me is good. And the first part of that, part of that verse says, let perseverance finish its work. And that could be really hard. Patience and perseverance are two different things. And some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Patience sometimes is just me sitting and waiting on God to do something. And those can be really difficult seasons too. But perseverance is me waking up not knowing if I can make it today. Like I'm just trying to get through today. And the only way I've made it through those seasons is desperately clinging to that truth that God is good and what he has for me is good. So if you're t being tested right now, if you're in a season of testing, let perseverance finish its work because it's really only God. This is the beautiful thing about God. He's the only one that can take our pain, our suffering, and attach meaning to it and make it into something good. And what happens when we persevere in testing is God is actually changing you and I and producing something more eternal, something more human, more human as, as he envisioned it when he created us. And so that first week of testing was all about a new way of thinking. Last week, we talked about the test of love in our lives. And so if you haven't checked those out, go do that. They're really, really good. I think this has been such a fun series to go through, James. They're on, online, so this week is gonna kind of build on that, but you can go back and check those two out online. So I'm just gonna jump right into our scripture. If you're able, um, can we stand as we read scripture together? I've, I've really been loving that we've been doing this. And speaking of not skipping the hard stuff, the passage we're kind of uh, reading today has caused a lot of debate and a lot of controversy in the church. So we're, we're gonna have to kind of dive in and go right on through it. Here we go. Chapter two of James, verse 14, says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, 
but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. And I think James is talking about somebody here. It's like, here's a hypothetical situation that's not hypothetical because someone said it to me. He said, you have faith, I have deeds, and show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. And you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Come on. So good. You guys can be seated. And really that verse, um, there's a lot in there. So we're gonna kind of unpack that a little bit because uh, some of that gets James into a little bit of trouble in church history. And even today, that kind of conversation between faith and works and that whole thing is still ongoing to some degree. But really that first verse is the one that is a little bit troublesome or has been. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no no deeds. Can such faith save them? And actually, James as a book almost didn't even make it into the Bible when the Bible was being canonized because of this passage. And really, it was that last part. Can such faith save them? And James kind of is bringing it into a salvation issue. And so it, it gets a little tricky here because at first glance, it does seem to contradict the gospel of Jesus, which says, hey, there's no amount of good works you or I could do to earn our way to God, but it's actually only our faith in Jesus's works that we receive grace and have faith to be saved. And so this was an issue for a lot of people. Uh, actually, Martin Luther, if you guys remember him from church history, he was the guy that like nailed the, the, he was a Catholic priest, like nailed the 95 thesis to the Catholic church back in like the 1500s or something like that. And he was calling out things that were good, like here's some corruption in the church, here's some, where we're taking advantage of people, here's where we've strayed from Jesus and, and his life. But he actually said that James, he thought that James shouldn't even be in the Bible, okay? He said, James is an epistle of straw. And so I didn't know that you could be considered an influential church figure and say stuff like that, okay? Martin Luther was wild. All I'm saying is we gotta be a little curious about what James meant right here. And I think to do that, I'm just gonna give us a little bit of context because I really believe that context gives us clarity when we approach scripture. And that's just kind of like a great little exegetical rule. When you're trying to discover meaning, we gotta know what the context is. We gotta know who the author's writing to. And so here's kind of the backstory to James. For the first few decades after Jesus, followers of Jesus were mainly in Jewish circles. And at the time of James writing, actually Paul is just now beginning to reach out outside of the Jewish ethnicity and his ministries going to the Gentiles. And so it created this, the church's first set of theological questions that they really had to deal with, which was what part does the law play in the life of a Christian? And really, you know, that kind of leads to the question between behavior and faith. Like what is the relationship between faith by salvation or salvation by faith 
and our good works, our good deeds. And for us, sometimes this seems a little bit silly. We'd say, you know what? No, we're free from the Old Testament. All we are obligated to do is follow Jesus and his teachings, and we would be right. (laughs) But we have to remember how deeply woven Judaism is into the Christian story. Jesus himself was a Jewish man. He lived a very Jewish life according to the Jewish law, and his teachings were from a moral, a Jewish moral perspective. And he had reverence for the law. He had very strong teachings about the law. He said, actually, I didn't come to do away with this thing. I came to fulfill it. He even declared one time that until heaven and earth disappear, not one punctuation mark from the law will disappear. And so this was a big deal for these first Jewish Christians who really had to wrestle with what responsibility the disciple of Jesus has to follow the law. That's kind of the background to James. James as a person was kind of this guy that stood as a bridge in between the Jewish leaders of which he was a part of. Most scholars will, will say that he's, he was probably the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he kind of stood in between these guys who were pushing for a stricter adherence to the law in the life of a Christian and the other group of people, which would have been Paul's people because Paul had been going out and reaching people and, and, and people had been coming to Christ who had no context with the Jewish law. And so they're like, what is all these rules? All we know is Christ, his freedom, and what it brings. So what are we supposed to be following here? And James is kind of standing in the, in the, in the gap with that, between those two groups. And really the main concern here, because it wasn't just like sometimes the Jewish leaders, we always think of them as like very religious, pharisaical, and that's to a degree that can be, but really their heart was, hey, we're concerned because we're, we don't know what to do. We don't know what's gonna happen if Christians don't have the law. There's like this practical thing that keeps them... Uh, in check with their behavior. So they, they weren't really, it wasn't a religious thing, is that they were just really concerned about the reputation of believers, about the reputation of Jesus. And, and essentially they were concerned about people practicing what they preach. And that's kind of where we're at in James. And Paul does a lot of uh, writings that are addressing ethical behavior, very practical stuff. And so James is doing very similar, the same thing. We're not leaving it up there as an idea, in ideation world, as a, as a fun little thing we all agree with. We're actually gonna bring it into our practical lives to shape our lives. And so James is just doing the same thing and pushing back against the idea that disciples of Jesus could profess that Jesus is ruling their life, but not look like that, but not look like Jesus in some way. Does that make sense? Here's something I think James really understood. James understood that Christianity is not a convert religion. Did you know that? Did you know like our goal is not to make converts? The goal of Christianity is to make disciples. Jesus said, go and make converts? No, he said, go and make disciples and teach those disciples to obey. And so the difference between a convert and a disciple is a disciple has an aim, right? A disciple's aim is to follow their master. Our our aim as a disciple of Jesus is to look like Jesus. And that requires obedience. And that requires action. And the beautiful thing about letting Jesus rule our lives, come on, some of you know this, he doesn't leave us where he found us. But he's actively working to make us into people of love. He's in our life actively working so that you and I might become the people of love he's called us to be. And so there's a spiritual formation that happens in the life of a disciple of Jesus that does not happen in the life of a convert of Jesus. Listen to what James said. He said, you believe that God is one. Good, that's cool. 
<laughs> the demons believe that. So what's the difference? The difference is converts believe, disciples act. And I'm going to take a little bit of liberty this morning and kind of assume that we all believe that our actions as Christians matter, that we are to practice what we preach in the world, that the way we engage people matters, the way we engage culture matters, like the demonstration of Christian ethics to people outside looking in, that that matters. And I would actually say there's a a very strong argument that actually Christian ethics, Christian actions, has been the greatest contribution to the world that the church has given. Human rights, the intrinsic value of people and their responsibility to take care of the people that are vulnerable and powerless and marginalized. The idea that discrimination or classification between us on any metric, that that's a wrong idea. These are the things that are Christian ideas that have been gifted to the world on behalf of Jesus. In Jesus, we have, this, we have this vision of human design and flourishing, and it's our job to carry that out in the world as Christians. And we have a, a beautiful, rich family history of people that have been doing, doing that, acting it out, and we're a part of that. We can look back, gain strength from. We have a, a, a rich family history of people that have been shaping the world to, look at, to make it look more like Jesus. There's this quote that um, Dallas Willard has. He says this about the disciple of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are people uh, who do not just profess certain views as their own, but apply their growing understanding of life in the kingdom of heaven to every aspect of life on the earth. That actually there's no secular and spiritual in our life. It's just all spiritual. He actually is in everything working, no matter whether we're at church, no matter whether we're at our job or at school or having a conversation with somebody or getting a coffee with a friend. It's all, he's there. He's in all of it. And so we don't just leave truths up into ideation, but the disciple puts them into practical application. Like it's not enough to believe that people have intrinsic value. It's not enough to theorize what it would look like to forgive people. It's not like a nice, fun little idea that we're supposed to sacrificially love people. It's our responsibility as disciples to act on those ideas because we believe and we're convinced that the world would be a better place if it looked more like Jesus. Could you imagine if Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. believed that all races and people should have equal rights, but he just sat with that a little bit, never did anything about it? Or the world, if Mother Teresa thought and believed in the idea that, you know, hey, poor people shouldn't just be looked over, but they should be looked after, but didn't do anything about that. So James comes as this book to remind us that we have a responsibility to the world to act and reimagine it the way Jesus sees it. So this passage that we read, it's not about salvation. James didn't write this and he And his intention was like, oh, they'll know now that they need to work to get to God. That's not his intention. It's not a salvation passage. It's an integrity passage. This is about integrity as disciples of Jesus. That's kind of the context. You guys still with me? Okay. So what is the relationship between our faith and our actions? Your actions do not create your faith, but they do shape it. Tell somebody it's time for a shape up. Your faith is actually not predicated on what you do, but it's actually predicated on what Jesus has done for you. 
And actually, if you look at the etymology of the word faith in the Bible, the one that we use for faith, it's really actually linked to this idea of divine persuasion. And we're persuaded from outside of us. You don't persuade yourself. Something outside of you persuades you. So faith in God means you were divinely persuaded by him to love him. And it was nothing you or I did other than just be open to receiving his love. And this should relieve some of us who grew up in a really religious system that ingrained in us the idea that your faith is, goes up and down and up and down based on what you did or did not do. It's not that. It's purely a gift. Faith is a gift. So you don't create faith by your actions, but you do shape it. And normally we think of actions as external things that our actions shape our circumstances. So if you want to change your circumstances, you got to start acting different. And that's true. There's some practical truth to that. But I would also like to suggest that your actions are an internal thing as well. That they shape more than just what you do. They actually begin to shape who you are. And so there's this process to spiritual growth and spiritual formation. And the first of it is realization. Jesus is calling you into something. That's a fact. If you're following Jesus, he's moving you somewhere. And it's normally really uncomfortable because it's new. And I'm just saying, if it's been a while since you've been uncomfortable, I'm just saying that the fastest way to not grow in your faith is to stay comfortable. Hearing his voice in our life is how we know what he wants us to do in our life. And where do we hear him? Everywhere. Everywhere, all the time. Here's one of the best sources we have to hear his voice. I love uh, what Gunnar said a few weeks ago when we were in our dream series. He said that God has said all he needed to say. Our lives are, are bound to the context of this. Like God has self-revealed himself perfectly to us in his word. There's no self-revelation outside of this word. He said all he needed to say but he hasn't said all he wanted to say. And I love that he said that. I wrote that down. I was like, this is going to be a tattoo, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you need to know that God wants to speak to you. And he loves to let you know what's on his heart. He'll speak to you to his, through his word. He'll speak to you through people. He'll speak to you through your dreams, amen? amen? And I'll tell you what freed me up. When I realized that God will speak to me through my thoughts, Y'all like y'all need a verse for that. Let me give you all a verse. First Corinthians said, first Corinthians two says, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Disciples of Jesus, you have been given the mind of Christ. And if you are walking with Jesus, if you are united with Jesus in his spirit, his thoughts have become your thoughts. Yeah. The God of the universe, the God of everything, 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 has given you and I the privilege of knowing the deepest parts of him this morning. Why? I have no idea. I could barely handle my own thoughts. I have no idea why he would let me handle his too, but he has. The only thing I can come up with is that he loves us a lot and he really wants us to know him. So next time that thought pops into your head, maybe just act on it a little bit. Maybe just step out. 
But Christian, what if that wasn't God speaking to me? But what if it was? So God has given us this realization that he's calling us to something. And it starts by him touching our heart with something. You just begin to have a desire. The second thing in our spiritual growth process is there's a situation. What God makes you aware of something, when he does, when he makes you aware of something he's pulling you into, he will normally give you a situation to step out on that thing. We talked last week about the test of love. And like, if you're actually wanting to grow and understand his love more, then you'll just start randomly noticing that there will be hard situations and hard people to love that just start popping up in your life. The thing that you step out on when he makes you aware in the situation, that thing you step out on, that is faith. The thing in between your desire and your action, that's faith. It bridges the gap between those two things. And so when you act, you are agreeing with God. You said, Lord, it's better to give than receive. So I'm going to do that, and I'm coming into agreement with what you said and the reality of your ways. That's faith. Is that making sense? Here's where I find myself often. God has brought me to this place of realization on something. My heart just begins to get that I'm just stirred up for something. I don't know what it is. It might be somebody I'm supposed to reach out to. It might be an idea that God has given me. But I have this desire and I can't, I just can't quite get myself to step yet. Do you know what I mean? Anybody else been there? And this is where our actions begin to shape our faith. Because our faith isn't quite there to get us to take the step yet. But our actions begin to encourage it. So our faith is being formed in testing. So first, realization God is making me aware of something that he's pulling me into. Second is the situation. He's asking me to step out on that thing. Third is inflation. And I don't mean to bring that word up in this economy, but it's all I can think of to rhyme with realization and situation, okay? So we're gonna, trigger warning, we're talking about inflation, okay? Inflation. Here's a wonderful thing about God's ways. If you start by taking that one step of faith, no matter how big, no matter how small, your action will actually begin to increase your faith for the second step. So the first one was a little bit hard, but the second one gets easier. And it, 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 it kind of starts to remove barriers because you've already acted on this thing one time. Now you have a history with action. Does that make sense? And what's actually happening is that your actions begin to inflate a couple of things. One, your desire to be who God has called you to be. You actually start wanting to be where he's, the person he's taking you uh, to be or the situation he's calling you. You start wanting that even more than you did before. And the second thing is it begins to increase your faith as you act out what God is making you aware of. Your faith gets bigger and bigger and bigger the more you act until you just don't even notice anymore. You're just operating in faith. Does that make sense? There's this exponential quality to our faith and it just compounds as you act. And the barriers to spiritual growth become less and less obvious because you're just so used to doing whatever he's put on your heart. And so we're putting our faith into action and our action actually inflates our faith. And I'll tell you who understands this, bodybuilders, okay? I only know that because my youngest brother is a bodybuilder. Uh, His name's Dawson, he goes here. He's like 6'3", 250, just jacked. It's so gross, it's disgusting. (laughs) It really is. It's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And he knows I hate going to the gym. I hate it. 
I hate it with everything in me. And, uh, you know, and he has all the muscles in the family, so he can do whatever he wants. I get that. I don't know if that's how genetics work, but he got all the muscles in our family. And I live with that, and I'm fine with it because I got all the looks. And so it evens out, and we're, we're fine. It's okay. The, the balance at, at home is good. Um, but I hate going to the gym, and he knows that. I don't like the idea of the gym. Like, sometimes you can like the idea of something, but you're like, I'll never do it. I don't like the idea of it. I don't like the doing part of it. I just don't like going to the gym. It's not fun. But I am in awe. (laughs) I am in awe of how disciplined and how dedicated Dawson is to going to the gym. He does not miss days. It's incredible. Like, vacation, he's going. Six days on vacation, not missing a day. If I text him like an hour before whole bunch of people are going to do something and he hasn't gone to the gym, he's not coming. Like, he is not showing up. He is going to the gym. And I tell him, I'm like, dude, there's no way that you enjoy going to the gym this much to where you never miss. Like you, there's no, I just don't even believe you. There's no way you don't get tired of it. And anytime I bring that up, he's always like, you know, uh, he's big and he has a lower voice. So he's like, you know, dude, um, it's all about your mindset. <laughs> and uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But he, he does respond. He, this is what he says. He's like, there are seasons where he doesn't like going. He's just honest. And especially at the beginning, he really didn't like going. He hated it. But he believed in what working out would do for his body. And so he kept going until eventually he just began to love it. And so it was the act of going every day that eventually made him love going every day. Does that make sense? That's kind of the same thing that happens with our faith. The, what action does to our faith is it shapes our faith to match our belief. That's why James can say in here, he's like, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. Because faith that can't be seen is no different than no faith at all. And at the end of the chapter, he has this beautiful analogy. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A body without the spirit is just a dead body. When our spirits leave, we're no longer alive in the physical body. You and I, like we exist in the physical and the spiritual. It's what constitutes a human being. We we are both. The two are one thing. And in the same way, your actions and your faith come together to make one spiritual being. They are one in the same thing. You can't have one without the other. And then I love that he gives this really practical example. Like he doesn't just leave it up into this philosophical debate about what constitutes spirituality. He's like, no, here's what you, here's what I'm talking about. Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? First of all, find new friends, okay? (laughs) That's the first thing. If you come to somebody, you're like, I need $20 to feed myself today. And they're like, let me pray for you. And then be blessed, you know? But they don't get you lunch? Find you some new friends, okay? (laughs) What good is it to claim to be people of love but don't demonstrate that for people? What good is it to claim to know the goodness of Jesus but we don't demonstrate goodness to people? Here's my favorite part about this whole thing is that we don't have to do it alone. It's actually, God knew this was too much of an assignment for us. He's like, it's gonna take all of y'all to do this. I remember when um, we first got to the dwelling, one of the things Addison and I, we loved about this place and that really just, we're, we were blown away by is how genuine everybody was with their faith. Like we just could not fathom the idea that so many people were completely in love with Jesus and all came to this one place together. And there was like this tangible certainty to people's faith that just really touched us. And it was refreshing when we got here. 
And as you go along, and if, you, if you've been a part of this church, I've figured out what it is. It is because so many people in this house, they just act on what the Lord is already doing in their lives. And coming into that kind of environment was one of the biggest seasons of growth we've ever had. Because when you start surrounding yourself with that kind of faith, with that kind of action, people that are showing up on a weekly basis to do food pantry, that doesn't just happen on Saturdays. There's people during the week, that teams of people that come to prep the food, to unload the trucks, like people with jobs, people with lives, or, or people when they come in to greet you, to, to make you feel like you're family and loved and belong. Like This house is a place of action. And being in that kind of place of action, you can't help but become that way yourself. You can't, you can't help but start stepping out more in things because everybody else around you is doing it. You and I have the responsibility to people sitting around us right now to help them become people of action. Hebrews says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some people do, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Look, I'll be really honest too. Pretty much all of our friends are better people than us. It's just a fact. They're more thoughtful. They're more loving. They're more caring. And, and honestly, the only thing we really have going for us is that we commit really easily to people. That's it. Because everybody else is better than us. But we're, we will commit to you. Like, do you want to be friends? Yes. <laughs> like, I don't know. You answered that really quickly. Maybe we should... Hang out first. Okay, we love you. What? <laughs> like, what is happening right now? So be careful if you ask us to be friends because we commit really easily. But all of our friends are better people than us. And I'm so grateful for that because it's made us better people. And we can't help but be people of action when all of your friends are just acting on what the Lord is doing in your life. So here's the individual question. Where are you sitting and Jesus is asking you to run? What idea are you sitting on? What dream are you sitting on? What action are you sitting on? And Jesus is saying, it's time to move. It's time to move. And for some of us, it popped in our head. I have mine. I'm sure you have yours. You already know what it is. And this morning is just an invitation to act. And Jesus is asking, will you do what I've asked you to do? And there are seasons of, of sitting and waiting. Absolutely. Like that is a real thing in our spiritual walk. I'm not negating that at all. But there are far more seasons where Jesus is asking us to move, if I can just be honest. Did you know there's actually very little in the Bible about what happens after we die, like life after death? We get some clues here and there. But the majority of the Bible, almost all of it, is addressing life before death and how we're supposed to act here and now. And I'm coming to a close. Piano, Lauren, you can come back up. People don't see what we don't demonstrate for them. Yeah. Actions confirm for people what we confess with our mouths. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Substance, evidence, these are tangible things. Faith is action and faith. It's evidence to the world of God's goodness. And if I can be really honest, I can't think of a better time that the words of James could be more applicable than they are right now. I think Gunnar maybe even made a comment about it last week, but I don't have to tell you guys, like there's documentary after documentary coming out 
scandal after scandal, story after story of lack of love to the strongest degree, committed by people who claim to be disciples of Jesus. And guess who else sees all those stories? It's not just us, everybody outside the church. And the culture is looking at us right now and they've judged us as irrelevant in a lot of spaces. And they've judged us based on our own words that we've shouted at them, but haven't walked out. And I think where we are in the Western church is that there's an integrity crisis. We have an integrity crisis in the Western church. And we can't avoid that anymore. We can't pretend we don't see it anymore. The Lord sees it. And I think what I've begun to notice in the Western part of the church is that the Lord is beginning to pour out His Spirit on a new generation of people who will uphold His ways and have integrity with their actions as they follow Him. That actually what's happening is Jesus is turning over the tables right now in the places where His people dwell. And He's calling us back to Himself. He's asking for a pure sacrifice of faith. No more lip service. It's just time for the church to act right. And it starts with making sure our actions are in alignment with our beliefs. I'm not discouraged, though, I really am. Because I know how good he is. I know his heart. And that gives me hope. Because as long as we are being discipled by him, as long as we remain intimate with, the, with Jesus, we'll always correct ourselves. So I have hope that as we stay close to him, he'll do what he needs to do in us. And this idea of faith and works is something Jesus actually never separates. He said, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. Faith and works make up one spiritual life. They're, this, they're one and the same. And I wanna close with this quote that I read from a pastor. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he was a pastor a German pastor and a theologian during uh, the rise of the Nazis in World War II. And he was a brilliant academic and he's, he's contributed incredible theology to the church. He's one of the more prolific theologians of the more modern era. But when the Nazis took power, he was, a, he was a pastor. And one of the first things they began to do is take out pastors of churches and install German Christian leaders. So that was one of the first things they began to do in churches. And this caused a big protest among Christians. People began protesting what, they were, what the Nazis were doing and, and not in support of the Nazi regime whatsoever. And as the Nazi regime gained more and more control, became more and more of a totalitarian state, most of those Christians were eventually imprisoned and executed for trying to undermine the Nazi government. But these Christians, they were called the confessing Christians. That's what they labeled themselves. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of their leaders. And he, he actually was, was working during these, uh, over the, the years that, that it got really bad and they had to go underground. He was working to try and reform Germany from the inside out because he had actually opportunities to leave. And he said, I can't, I can't leave and then come back and be a part of reshaping something. I have to stay. And so during this time, he wrote a lot of different things. One of the best things and probably his most notable work is The Cost of Discipleship. 
which would find a, a lot of commonality with James this morning because it was, a, it was, a, it was very critical of a, a Christianity that has faith without action. It's what he, he kind of coined the term cheap grace. But eventually Bonhoeffer was arrested, executed as a, as a martyr along with so many others for putting his faith into action based on what Jesus was showing him. He believed in what Jesus said. He believed in the vision for humanity that Jesus believed in. And this was the quote that he, that he wrote during this time. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. I don't want to be a wishful dreamer in the kingdom of God. I want to follow the master Jesus as he reshapes this world under his rule and authority of love. And sometimes that can be really hard and I feel like I can't. I know you probably maybe feel like there are things in your life he's calling you to and you're like, I can't. You can't. You can't. We have this saying at the dwelling that I love. It's what Jesus demonstrated for us, Holy Spirit empowers in us. If you're walking with Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit and he can take you wherever Jesus is leading you. So what's the test? What was the test this morning? The test is, are we gonna be a church that moves? God is making our church a people of love. Are we going to move? God wants to bring hope to our city. Are we going to move? God wants to heal the broken. Are we going to move? God wants us to look after the marginalized. Are we going to move? So many of you have God dreams you're just sitting on. Are we going to move? He's looking for people who prioritize his presence. Are we going to move? And he's looking for a place he can trust with his vision. Are we going to move on that? Dwelling church, can Jesus trust us with his heart that when he leads us into something, we'll move? That's what's asked of us this morning. I'll go ahead and get the community leaders to come on up. If we have any in here, you guys can come on to the front. We have no community leaders in here? Oh, we have a few. There we go. Woohoo! As these guys come up, if you need prayer for anything, they're here to minister to you guys. If you need to pray for courage to step out this morning, they're here to pray for you. If you need, if you're like, man, I just want to hear the Lord's voice more. I don't even know where he's taking me. I need to hear him more clearly. Come get prayer this morning. Anything else you can think of, these guys would love to pray for you. If you don't, if you haven't even thought about Jesus before, these guys would love to pray for you. If you just have questions, they would love to pray for you. So this is kind of how we're going to close the service. We're going to end it right there. Um, I love this church because I already know that God is putting people into action and I've seen it and I've been affected by it in my own personal life. And I'm excited about what he wants to continue to pour out on us. So love you guys. Be blessed. Come get prayer if you need it. We will see you guys next week for week four of our series, Testing. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information about The Dwelling, visit thedwellingchurch.org.